Hi, I'm Barnaby Cook, and welcome to The Exit Plan, a podcast for business owners that are interested in learning more about how to sell their business. Each episode, I interview someone who's bought or sold a business, either a creative agency or a production company. The conversation gets under the skin of why they wanted to sell or were looking to acquire, how the deal was structured, how they agreed upon evaluation, and what lessons they learned along the way. Here we go. In today's episode, I talk to Lisa Pasca, the founder and CEO of SEO and content marketing agency Verve Search. She dives into how she handled the challenge of rapid head growth in headcount in the early years and how Google's algorithm changes impacted her business resulting in her need to restructure to continue growth. She talks about her motivation for selling the agency for financial security and the importance of trusting your instincts during the negotiation process. Lisa also talks about the challenges in merging SEO teams and cross-selling services during the integration. Despite initial optimism, tensions arose due to missed targets and the loss of some clients during the pandemic. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Can you introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, I am Lisa Porska. So I run a creative SEO agency for 12 years. I set up a Verve Search in 2009 after being in search engine optimization SEO since 2005. And I worked for another kind of marketing agency as I started in SEO and I got so engaged and excited about the potential of that as a marketing and advertising discipline that I decided to start my own. Nice. And did you go out and set up the business on your own? Did you have a business partner? No, I started... How did it come about? Yeah, so I started on my own, mostly because I knew a lot of people already that had started agencies or started companies with business partners. And Already at that age, and I was, it was the year that I turned 30, my view was that it's quite a risky thing to set up with a partner, even if you are the best of friends and you really get each other. Um, the kind of nature of starting a business is so much, I believe, about your instinct and what you believe is the right thing to do on gut. And having a business partner means that you have to try to explain your gut feeling. And that's very, very rarely able to do that. Also, I think I wanted to go so fast. I didn't really want to rely on someone else. And yeah, I, I still think that was the right decision. But it was also this question. Yeah. How did you make the leap? Like, how did you find your first clients? Yeah. So um, luckily, I, so I started in SEO in 2005. I had actually worked for that marketing agency, a marketing advertising agency for a couple of years when uh, at 25, I was surprised <laughs> realizing I was pregnant and I was on maternity. And when I came back from the maternity, my previous job was a project manager in the interactive team. That's how old I is. They called it interactive. And I couldn't have that job back. But they said, oh, we have this thing called search and optimization. And I, honestly, I did not have a clue what that was. I Googled search engine optimization, which is ironic. And as, the more I started reading and the more I read, the more kind of interested I was that this was a discipline that was so new, but very few seemed to know how to do it, but it's illogical. So after working for a, for a couple of years in that agency, I really tried to convince them to 
scale up that team because I started hiring and we were doing pretty well already in the SEO team. We got to about five people, I think, but they just didn't get it. So because SEO is such an industry that there's no right or wrong answer, it's basically SEOs against Google, like trying to interpret the algorithm of what how Google ranks a website. I had started a blog already. So I started a blog. I was very engaged in the communities online for SEO, which was then really small. And already by the 2007, I had my first speaking gig. So when I launched my company in 2009, I already had quite a good profile in the industry. But obviously, as most people are, you have very strict employment rules of taking clients or taking people with you. So I actually resigned in November 2008, the height of the recession. I was like, this is a good idea. (laughs) Everyone else was like, are you crazy? This is like the worst time to start a company. And I'm like, not if I run an agency. That's the, at that point, the only way you can prove return on investment where everything else was very challenging to to prove. So I actually launched the company at a a conference called uh, SES London in February of 2009. And I'd already worked my notice out, but I finished at that company in end of December. And I got my first clients just two weeks after that conference. Amazing. And then Talk to me a bit about the growth of that business and how it evolved over the next few years. Yeah. So in 2009, I also won one of my first awards. I won a BlackBerry Woman in Technology Awards. Uh, Do you remember BlackBerry? (laughs) I do. I do. (laughs) And I remember being at that award ceremony and having my iPhone on the table. And that was on the table with all the BlackBerry people. Uh, That did not go down well. So I had a really good start. And I had some good clients within the first year. And by the May, I had already hired the first employee. But then I got pregnant. My second daughter, first year of business, I was like, oh, this is so typical of me. And so uh, by 2011, I just wanted to make sure that everything was secure while I was on a few months maternity. So we were at that point, three people. I had about four or five clients. It was sticking over. Um, but I had to kind of like stall a bit. And then when I came back in 2011, that's when it started really kind of growing. So the first, like 2011, 2012, we grew to about seven people. And that stage was like super exciting. That was for me, one of the best kind of versions of Verve Search was that start where you can move really fast. But with that bit, you know, I hadn't run a business before. I had no experience in this. So it was very much like like trial and error really fast. Uh, I've always had a real interest in people. So my kind of strategy was I was really good at SEO, but I was also really good at finding the good people. So I just concentrated on finding the right kind of attitude and grit in people and then training them really fast to be able to grow fast. So those few years were amazing. I hired a lot of, um, I had a strategy of hiring students from Kingston University where we were office were just uh, around the corner. I hired, th- I remember one of the first strategies I did, I hired three 
uh, students from Kingston and did like a six week kind of internship. And the idea was that I would train them in those six weeks and I would hire full time whoever was really good and would potentially be a full time employee. But they all did really well. So I hired all three of them. (laughs) And that was the first kind of really risky thing I did because I hired before I got the clients. I was like, I'm sure this must be, you know, it's not always getting the client first and then hiring because if you don't have the right people, it is really difficult to get the quality of work you need to expand again. So that was like 2012, 2013, uh, where the SEO industry had huge changes where the algorithm updates were happening like fast and furious, I want to say. And it was a big challenge to keep on top of it. But I would say that after the kind of that period, once we were about 10, 12 people, we got to the bit where I, I like to say that agency life is very much like having kids. You know, the first few years is the infant years where everything is like exciting, but like terrifying and you don't really know what you're doing. And those next years for me was maybe the best because it was still able to move fast. But once you get to about like, I would, I would probably say like 15 people is where you then need to really start thinking, not necessarily about HR, because I, I think HR is mostly completely pointless because it's, it's nothing human about it. But you are likely to then start seeing the first kind of cracks of that. Almost exactly like my experience. And I think, yeah, still starting my business. I, that sort of first few years was always the bit that people kind of look back to kind of about seven people, you know, not really knowing what we're doing, sort of pulling all nighters all the time, because we sort of, you know, didn't know how to deal with deadlines. So we just have to be like, Oh, we have to deliver it tomorrow morning. Okay, well, I guess we're all staying here all night then. <laughs> and there was just something about that sort of yeah, just all in it together and sort of working for, it was really, really fun. But obviously, we weren't really a business at the time. You know, it was just like a bunch of mates really like doing it for the love of it. And I think it is a bit, you do lose a bit of that as you grow, but that's just the natural progression of how businesses evolve. I do think that's true. And but I think one of the reasons why it's so exciting that stage is that once you're about like seven to, to 15, it still feels, it feels like a community. And I think there's psychologically, I think that is a very, very important part of business is when you feel like you are accountable to each other rather than hierarchy, things can really feel exciting, even when it's hard. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges at growing businesses is how do you still make it feel like a community and that everyone is in it together? And I saw like huge changes to that once it got to over like a few years later when we were like 25 people. For me, the worst year was 2014, where we were about 25 people. And that's when people, you know, it's not that many people, but the slackers, they manage to hide when it's that many people. And that's where it always when it comes out. Yeah. And the number of interpersonal relationships increases exponentially, you know, from 24 to 25, there's suddenly 24 more interpersonal relationships than there were before you hired that person. So it's just so easy 
for one or two people who aren't necessarily a good fit or pulling their weight to sort of drag it all down. So yeah, I totally. I have a theory about this. So like, because my interest is, has always been in psychology anyway. So I found it, I think that's why I love doing business more than anything was understanding that kind of behavior in people in different stages. And I think there's, when you get to about 25 people, if someone isn't performing well, and when you get to that stage, you might have bigger clients. So you have higher kind of targets to hit and stuff. When people don't perform, what tends to happen is that they want to blame it on someone else. And so then what happens around that kind of stage is that people start blaming outside factors or the company or, you know, whatever else. And it isn't that they're doing it necessarily consciously. Like it is a subconscious thing that kind of happens. And the more of those you have, like performing badly isn't bad for one person or because they per- it's bad for everything. It is the thing that spreads the faster. And it isn't the performance itself. It's the attitude that goes with it because everyone wants to perform well and everyone wants to feel like the team. So then I became like, look, I need to figure out a way where everyone can support each other to get better when we get to that stage. And when people aren't performing, how do we make make sure that they don't feel attacked or feel like defensive? Because then it starts spreading to like gossip and kind of like negative behavior in general, which is so toxic for a growing business. And it can go out of hand so quickly, especially if those people that are not performing are in senior positions. Because they can literally within a month have the whole agency in disarray. Yes, it's definitely definitely a a challenge that I've experienced as well. So what size did you get to? Tell me a bit about the exit and how that came about. Were you looking to sell? Did someone approach you? So that 2015 year, I think is very important, actually, because by the end of 2014, our performance was really low, as in we weren't performing as well as we had before. There'd been a lot of changes in in the algorithm to Google, and it was the smallest profit I had. So my, my year end was the January, and it was the smallest profit I had ever. And so by the January 2015, I did a very risky thing. This is only two years after we ended up selling. I cut 37% of the agency and completely restructured. So those people, because it had, that's what had happened, I'd made a mistake in a hiring that had then impacted everyone. Everyone's behavior and, and attitude was really negative, And I couldn't then change the strategy fast enough. So... And unfortunately, I had to make a huge change. So I restructured and also reshaped the agency instead of it being a content marketing, which like back then, content marketing was an SEO word. Now it's like for everything. And then decided to start an outreach team, which is more like PR led for reaching out to journalists and the entire business being focused on creative campaigns to get links. So that 2015, the January, we cut a huge part. I say we, me, uh, but I feel like it sounds better when I say we. And then uh, I had to rehire. And then just 
at that point, I already knew I wanted to sell. And I had had a couple of conversations with a advisor that I had found just serendipitously <laughs> through just starting to think about it. <laughs> and he was like, look, you have to take quite a lot of time to stabilize and whatever. But I was like, no, I really feel like this strategy is really solid now. I know I can get the clients. And I was really good at the sales bit. So I was like, okay, we can go now. Why did you want to sell? To really answer that question, I have to kind of tell you a little bit about my background. So I was born in Northern Norway and my mum was alcoholic and my dad was a fisherman. Sounds like a start of a joke. And I didn't grow up in the kind of most secure environments. Um, I moved a lot. I went to six different primary schools. I moved 18 times before I was 18. It was, But that is also what the catalyst was for me moving to the UK on my own without ever having been here. But throughout my childhood, both my parents had been bankrupt. And so my dad lost the house that he'd built himself with his brothers up in northern Norway. And I spent most of the summers in my teens working to be able to buy like a pair of Levi's jeans. So I have come from not having anything and things like electricity being shut off and all that was quite a common occurrence. And so now at this stage, I had two kids. And with my first first child, I was a single mom for many years and working in the agency as an SEO. At that point, I was paid like £25,000. I was in minus 200 before I even paid for food. I knew how what it felt to not have anything. And I just really didn't want that to be the case for my kids. And now living in the UK, even going to university costs money, which is blows my mind as a Scandinavian. So when I started Verve, I already had at the back of my mind that I wanted to build and sell. But there's something weird about admitting to that because a lot of people seem to think that having this as a goal already is somehow money orientated and whatever. Yes, it fucking is. And no one should be worried about saying that. And for me, I knew that I wanted to secure the freedom of my kids, but also for me, because I had not had a single moment without responsibility since I was like nine years old. So being able to sell would give me the time and the opportunity to actually figure out things and what I want to do. And I knew I was good at this. So I was like, I know I can do it. Um, so that was kind of the motivation, really. That and buying back my dad's old house was one of my vision board things. Were you able to do that? No, because I got divorced the same year as us all. Okay, all right. Well, let's see. We'll come on to that. We'll come on to that. I mean, thank you for that background. That's very fascinating. Okay, so you knew you wanted to sell. You had an advisor that found someone that was interested or, or how did no. how did it Actually, so we started working with them. So they had so the first person that I was being advised by, they actually merged with another company. So kind of changed. Like at start, they were kind of more helping me create like a, a board to meet up because the board like it was only me. I was hundred percent owner. I had already started setting up EMI shares, but there was no kind of structure for me to like report. So that was the first stage. But once we started getting ready to go out, we did the normal thing of like, you know, you write that one pager that you send out. And they had 
they had some prospect that they w- wanted to introduce me to, and I met a couple of others. But the final sale actually ended up being Omnicomedia Group. And that was actually through a connection that I had. So I knew someone that worked at Omnicomedia Group, and he contacted me saying, Lisa, I'd love to, to take the lunch to hear about, about what Verva's doing. And I thought for a second, like, I wonder if he is digging, because I knew at that point the Omnicomedia Group didn't have like a very solid SEO kind of presence. And that's where I came from. And obviously, I still use the advisors, but the final sale was actually from my own contact. Okay. And what kind of level of turnover and employees were you at the point where you sold? I don't even know the turnover because I have never even thought about stopping. I don't know. <laughs> the employees. So in terms of numbers, I think we were... So September 2017, that the deal finalized, started in January 2017, though. So I could have had a baby in that time. And the number, I think, was, I think we're 32 to 35, maybe 35. Okay. I can't remember the exact. But in terms of profit, I don't know how much, what I'm allowed to say. But it was around the million pound mark. In, of profit. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that is definitely the point where you start to get some real interest from buyers, I would say. Yeah, it was under. And I would, to this day, I really wish I'd waited one year. But it was, you know, there was loads of talks about interest and stuff and interest possibly dwindling and stuff. So because the deal took so long to negotiate, like if I'd waited four more months and said, no, I wanted to go on this year, that would have been a lot better for me. But, you know, you only really see that in hindsight. While I've got you here, I just wanted to let you know a little bit about me. After having acquired a TV commercials production company earlier this year, I'm currently doing a roll-up in the video production space, and I'm looking for production companies to join my group. If you don't think you're quite there yet, I'm also spending some of my time advising smaller businesses on business growth and exit planning. So if you want to chat to me about that, drop me a line on LinkedIn. Here endeth the advert. Talk to me a bit about the negotiation process. What happened from January to September that year? So I was really prepared that this was going to be a long process. And obviously being a network agency, they're kind of known in general for taking longer because the process of due diligence usually is very thorough. But me and so I at that point had a CEO who was like literally the yin to my yang. We were such a good team and she is such a great detail person. And we decided very early on, even as we hadn't even got the letter of intent yet, we started working on the due diligence papers. We asked our advisors for all the information. So we spent literally the whole month of January and maybe some of February just preparing everything. So once they asked for it, that bit at least wouldn't take a long time. And weirdly, the due diligence didn't take a long time, but... Negotiating with a network that's US-based obviously means that you have to do a lot of talks back and forth with lawyers in different countries and so on. So there was a lot of back and forth. And by the July, I was getting really tired of these like tiny little details. But most of it, to be fair, most of the reasons why it took so long was I had a lot of things that I wanted in there. Uh, for things that they couldn't make me do. Or, you know, I had a clause that was like four pages 
that was just things that they couldn't change or could make me do and, and stuff like that. Because from what I gathered from people I spoke to, that is the biggest risk to your actually earn out is if they can change anything that you are doing. How did you go about agreeing evaluation? To be honest, very honest with you, I do not understand the way that these deals are structured. I like after selling, I have have talked to so many people as well that have sold, and none of it really make any sense. And um, like my advisors had advised me about what is typical for a creative agency or or a SEO agency that like ours. And the way that they talk about it is often in multipliers and multipliers, you know, from, you know, five to seven, um, unless they're tech involved, then it could be higher. But this is such an idiotic way of thinking about it because it's all depends on how the deal is structured. Because if it's an earn out, it's not a multiplier of each year, it's the profit that you earn above the first year, usually. So I don't think anyone can talk about a deal in just multiplier because it all depends on the entire structure put together, how the earnout is done and how long it is. Basically, so you sold in September 2017 and then how long was the earnout? It was till end of 2020. I see. So that fully takes in COVID. Yeah. Yeah. So three years. Yeah. Okay. Well, just taking a step back. So from the point you sold it, how was that integration to begin with the first couple of years? First year wasn't too bad because of that clause where I they couldn't make me do much. But also, they kind of left us alone. I was merged part of Omnicom's uh, SEO team as well. So that was obviously a bit of a challenge because they were very different kind of SEO people, I think. I'm really unsure how much I can say, but it was okay the first year. It wasn't great. I didn't meet any clients. And technically, by the end of the deal, I had only met one client. Presumably, that was part of the offer of selling to Omnicom yeah. is that you can then cross-sell your services yeah. to other clients in the group. Yeah, but that didn't did materialize in the way that you thought. No, that like I really tried on the first year. I did loads of like talks and stuff within the agencies because there are loads of agencies within that group. And so I wanted to like educate everyone about what actually SEO is, how we do it and how great it can be if you do it well. At this point, we were already won. Like my agency had won best SEO agency two years in a row. We cleared out, like I think we had like 30, 40 awards already. So we were like seen as one of the best in Europe at this. And I put like big workshops up and everything, but they hardly had any people in. Right. And not people that could make the decision. But then to be fair, like I know they tried. Like the people that did the deal with me, so the senior people, they were, really wanted it to work. I be- totally believe that. It's just really hard in big networks or big agencies to get that kind of middle tier of like directors. If you actually being your promotions and stuff are based on targets, you don't want to give away any of your profit to someone else. Um, so in the structure of it doesn't work. At the point where you sold, how did you feel about the deal? I felt pretty good. Like they were like as suitors, they did a great job. <laughs> they were really like invested. And, you know, I quite enjoy the negotiation and, and being able to really figure out how to make it work. Like I felt positive about it. And I, I felt so positive about it that 
I actually made the decision against my divorce's advice to tell my employees before the deal went through because I just didn't want they, them to feel like this wasn't a good thing. So yeah, I was positive. I thought it was going to be good. And I knew they were, because I was so interested in other things as well. I was already developing a piece of software alongside the agency. So I had loads of innovation ideas of making things work better and quite fucking awesome tech solutions. But, and they were really keen of like developing me further. And they were like, well, there, we're going to help you elevate your career. And at that point, I'd done everything myself. So the idea of like having someone to look up to or to teach me stuff, I was like, yeah, I want that. But that never really transpired. Presumably, you're not there anymore. How did you end up leaving? As I said, by the May 2020, I knew we weren't going to make the targets. And we had made loads, we put loads of people on furlough, which really created loads of tension within the agency, understandably so. And a lot of people were really worried about their jobs. And it became quite clear by the June, July that we really, the only way we had to reduce because we lost so many clients. And we couldn't really get clients to stick with a contract. No one would have known this. So for my personal health, I maybe should have left them. I just couldn't leave them all there. I couldn't, I just didn't want to leave and have a, you know, a network agency HR team deal with all my employees and being very on, you know, it's the nature of those kind of HR departments and big agencies. It's nothing to do with human relation. It's like, it's very legal. I just couldn't do it. So. I stuck it out and I handed my notice in the August when you had a six month notice period. And I said, I, I want to work, work it out because I want to make sure that I can get jobs for as many people that I have to let go and make some kind of structure that they can, you know, I'd already been training a guy within the agency to take over from me as a MD CEO. And to be fair to Omnicom, they did take my advice on that because I really didn't want it to be a network person coming in as, you know, it's a very different type of vibe in a kind of agency that has had a founder than a network thing. I think I had my last, like, you know, we were not in the office or anything, but by the December, I had left. I, I think I had the notice period out to February or something. But I just completely crashed. That was honestly the worst, worst months of my life, for sure. Really hard transition for anyone. And I mean, I, I exited the business that I founded and was in for 15 years and basically had a breakdown the year, the year after, you know. So, and I was I, actually someone I interviewed yesterday sold a business and had a breakdown <laughs> you know so i think it's... it seems like a very <laughs> and to be honest i'm kind of glad that covid was there because it allowed me to completely fall together you know there was there was not loads of bus it was everything was stopped and everything was quiet but i did have a complete like meltdown i think a lot of the stuff when you're when you're a founder and you you become so attached to everything. And, you know, that's usually the superpower and the kryptonite at the same time. It's like, it's the thing that will break you. And 
you know, like having to cut all those people that weren't, you know, they were all great. So it wasn't like before I had to like research because no one would listen to what I wanted to change and they weren't, but they were like, they were amazing. Like, honestly, like the best, the, I still believe that Verb was the best agency at that point. And so, you know, everyone was so scared and everyone was so worried and not having, I, I just didn't get any really support from, I, I obviously from the, I still had support from HR teams at Omnicom and there were some great people. And weirdly, the finance team at Omnicom were the best support, <laughs> the most unlikely, moral, supportive gang when things were tough. And also, at the same time, in that last year of birth, my COO, she got breast cancer. So she was going through all of that. And I think, honestly, the hardest thing with not getting the money wasn't really the money that I lost because I never had it. But it was the people that had in the EMI scheme. So I had about five people, managers in my management team that that had taken lower salaries than they could earn in somewhere else to get these shares. It was their kids' university and their deposit on houses and all of that that just went because the structures of these things are usually always kind of done in with keeping the CEO. And I had to do so much work. Like I had a couple of months, I think that was actually in 2019, where I had to really push the buyers to understand how important it was to keep that team and that they have to find another way of motivating them if we are not going to get to that trajectory. And that just broke my heart. I just felt so guilty that they had stayed for all those years, really gone for it and been by my side all that time, most of them anyway. And then they got nothing at the end, like absolute zero on that horrific last year with everything. I was just like, that's just, I, I could, yeah, it sucks. Yeah. I mean, that feels like a, I mean, I don't know the specific, from the buyer's perspective, it feels like that's really risky because you're then going to have a lot of disgruntled people who didn't get what they expected, who will quite possibly leave as a result of it. Yeah. And, you know, no one could have predicted COVID and it affected everybody. And it feels like it would be completely reasonable to extend or, you know, renegotiate in light of that. Yeah, and they were so lovely. Like, I'm, they all did leave. Like, the, the, there was two that stayed for a little bit longer. But let's just say, like, now Verve Search, which was one of the literally seen as the reputation-wise, the best SEO agency in, in Europe, one of the best, is now a department of one of the Omnicom agencies. Looking back on the whole experience, what, how do you feel about it? I really think that that even the bad stuff taught me so much about myself about people about what I actually care about and to be honest I'm actually really really proud of myself for not selling my integrity and for sticking with it because I know it, it's so easy and I don't blame anyone for jumping ship before fuck that totally get it but you know, I might not have as much money as I could have had. Um, I feel gutted for the people that didn't get the significant amount to, to change their lives. 
but I do really know what matters to me now. Like hundred percent. I've always had like a self belief in myself because there wasn't anyone else that were there to, to say well done or so I've already had this, but this, that experience and especially that difficult year really solidified to me who I am. And I feel more secure rooted in myself by having a complete breakdown and building back up is the roots are deeper now. What are you doing now? The first year, I didn't do much at all. In the first year after uh, so 2021, it was still COVID. I started a consulting company. So I have just um, started kind of growing that again. So I'm running a advisory mentoring business called Activision. Act is a Norwegian word, which means to be real and honest. And I love that. So I have, I have currently got about three clients that I see monthly basis. Most of them are, are in the SEO industry. And I really enjoy helping people with mostly it's not a mentoring for like, you know, this is how you sell a business. Although I've done consulting for that as well. But what I'm really enjoying doing and what I've done a lot in the last years since Verb is I was about to start a applied neuroscience degree actually last year, but I've, I've deferred it. But I really like working with individuals to be able to get their belief in themselves. You know, it's not about confidence when you, when you're a leader, it's about belief in yourself and others and really, really understanding all of the parts that are the interpersonal stuff. Because if you can get that right, and you know your stuff in this in an industry, that's how you fucking get to be able to create agency that can sell. I love it. It's a great perspective. And yeah, I, I think that often gets overlooked, doesn't it? People just focus on operations, finance, sales and marketing. You know? And also like it seems so so from a neuroscience point of view, your limbic system is the part of your uh, brain that makes all the decisions and has you know, all the behavioral decisions. It has no capacity for language. And the neocortex is your thinking and your analysis and stuff. But most of our decisions is already formed and has no ability to create a decision, which is why we have so many of those moments where we're like, I don't know why, but I don't like this. I don't think this is a good client. And that is what I was really good at. You know, I started off this saying how I knew I couldn't have a business partner because I do have a very strong instinct when it comes to things. And that is listening to the part in, on your brain that actually knows stuff that your neocortex isn't able to really analyze. And it's so fucking like easy to post hoc rationalize decision. Um, there were, there's been loads of research on this and I find it so interesting because, you know, you might conclude that the reason that something went well was this, this, and this, but it might be completely different. And that is the thing that I'm interested in. How do you help people be more of who they are, be comfortable with it? Because when you talk your truth and you're actually operating in that being sense, you can sell anything because you are talking truth and people can see that and people can feel that. And I 100% believe that is why Omnicom was interested in an agency like Verve is because I 
am really good at being able to talk from that point of view. And that is really what sales is about. That's really what inter- like leading is about. It's the core of everything because it is the core. <laughs> Just looking back on the whole thing, is there, are there any sort of bits of advice that you would give someone at the very beginning of this process or anything that you might have done differently? I would say always trust your instinct. If something doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. Because there were a couple of times I was unsure about the deal that I should have really gone like questioning more. I would say, you know, it's not as complicated as you think it is. The, the, like the deal and selling, even if it takes nine months or a year, that is not the hard bit. Make sure you get as much as you can in the first bit because the next bit might never happen. In fact, it rarely happens. So make sure you protect yourself and your agents and your people. Like make that one of the priority things you bring to the negotiation table. Because if you don't protect that, you have no way of reaching those targets or those milestones for the earnouts. And also, multiplier does not mean multiplier. Do not get like seduced by someone talking about a tons multiplier of your profit because there's no fucking way it's that simple ever. So it has to be the whole deal structure. Brilliant. I mean, that is, thank you very much for telling us your story and being so open about it. That's great and very will be very useful for other people out there. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's kind of cathartic to yeah. talk <laughs> about it after all this time. Hopefully I haven't said it said too much. We're always paranoid about saying things that I'm not allowed to say, but I don't really know anymore. The main thing is, you know, even the hardest stuff is always good for something. That's what we say in Norway. Or what doesn't kill you makes you funnier. That's a, a great place, a great place to end. Thank you very much for listening to the Exit Plan podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review to help other people find us. If you're wondering what's next for you and your business and want to chat about an exit plan, connect with me on LinkedIn.